0: Welcome to The Drill Down, the business stories behind Stocks on the Move. I'm Corey Johnson, and today is June 24th. Well, just ahead, we'll look at a home builder who says enough is enough with rising home prices. Plus, Rite Aid has to deal with people who just aren't getting sick. And FireEye COO John Waters tells us The Drill Down just how his company is gonna split itself in two. But first, it's sponsor time.
1: The Drill Down is brought to you by Era, a one-stop equity platform where you can seamlessly connect to any earnings call and surface actionable insights automatically. Era's AI-powered tools will allow you to work faster and smarter. That's Era A-I-E-R-A dot com.
0: And we hope you listen to the Drill Down every day, at least once a day. Heck, I could listen to this thing over and over and over again, and I do. But it's easier when you hit the subscribe button or the follow button in your favorite podcast app. Make sure you don't miss a single episode.
1: And let us know what companies you think we should be drilling down on. Talk to us on Twitter and Instagram by following at drilldownpod and connect with us directly at our website bizpod.net. Well,
0: I'm Corey Johnson. Welcome to The Drill Down. We've got the business stories behind the stocks and the move. And that's not all. We've got our editor Ben Wilson in for Isaac Webster today. Ben, uh, we're gonna go over the three most important stories in the world of business today. I'm glad to have you along with us.
1: That sounds great, Corey. It's good to be here. All right, so let's start with the
0: most important. It's so good to have you. Um, You're here every day. We just don't always get to hear from you. Um, Starting with the most important three business stories of the day, we got to start with this infrastructure deal. So President Biden signed off Thursday in a bipartisan agreement uh, put together by 10 senators uh, from both sides of the aisle. That's gonna pump hundreds of billions of dollars into the, of new spending into infrastructure projects across the country. Uh, It's a big deal, it's a big political deal, but it's a big business deal. A lot of money is gonna be spent. So some of this money, when you hear the trillion-dollar-plus tab put on it, that's over the course of maybe eight years, it's some money that was already committed, but there's some new money, $579 billion a year of new money. And the three biggest buckets there, I'm gonna tell you right now, so 53% is going to transportation, 11% 11% is going to broadband, and 9% is going to water infrastructure. So this is a, this is a ton of money over the course of eight years. Um, and the money's going to start uh, soon if this thing can get through the, uh, through, through Congress. Uh, there could be even more, there's lots of politics going on. But fundamentally, Ben, this is a, real, uh, a really big deal because there's going to be a lot more spending on those infrastructure projects of all sorts all over the country.
1: Well, we've been talking about this infrastructure bill for a while, so I'm just happy that something finally got signed and we're moving forward.
0: Yeah, well, at least they got a deal. They haven't, they haven't signed it yet, but they've got to, they've come to a basic terms of agreement on the bill. We'll get more details about the bill over the next 24 hours. But, of course, it has to make its way to Congress and through Congress. But this is a, a significant accomplishment just to have any kind of agreement coming out of Washington, D.C. I'd like to think it's because I was in Washington this week and just left some really good Northern California vibes on those fine people in that beautiful city of our nation. That capital. must have been it, right. Corey. <laughs> Best, uh, most important business story, number two. Let's talk about jobs. Uh, we got some employment numbers today, uh, and they weren't great. These are initial files for unemployment. So uh, I don't want to necessarily compare it to what economists thought, but there was a uh, the numbers were disappointingly worse, which is to say it looked like this really broad economic recovery was happening and more employment was happening, but it's not happening as much. Initial files for unemployment were 411,000. Uh, for the week that was 418,000 the prior week, it's down a little bit, but not down as much. Continuing claims were at 3.53 million a week ago. Now they're at 3.39, so call it 3.5 to 3.4. Again, not you know not great. Uh, specifically, if we break it down and look at kind of the places where we had the biggest increases and the biggest de- decreases, uh, the states that were the worst, the biggest increases in unemployment. Pennsylvania added 15,000 people uh, unemployed, Michigan 2,000 new people unemployed, and Connecticut 1,000. Whereas the decreases were in Illinois, California, and Ohio, in each each case about 3,500 people uh, 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 fewer applying for unemployment. But we can see in some places like Michigan, like Pennsylvania, like Connecticut kind of scattered around the country, um, unemployment uh, and employment itself uh, not going great for a lot of people. All right, let us move on to the third most important business story of the day, Ben. uh, Interesting development at Ford. One of the highest ranking employees at the the company, uh, the chief technology officer, Ken Washington, he's leaving to become the vice president of software engineering at Amazon. That's right, that's where we are right now in the world of innovation, where you have the top technical talent at an automaker, is going to go run software engineering for Amazon in Silicon Valley. He's going to come to Sunnyvale, Ken Washington, um, also one of the highest ranking African Americans uh, in the auto business. But uh, uh, and uh, does some stuff at University of Michigan. That's sort of how he ended up at Ford. Uh, but he is, you know, after some really significant changes at Ford, and obviously there are big changes towards an electric F one fifty and electrification of a handful of vehicles and a big move in that direction. Uh, he's leaving that uh, that move behind him to join Amazon and run software engineering. Also interesting, uh, the D- Detroit Free Press found this out and broke the story. They got a comment out of Ford, Amazon would say nothing as is typical of Amazon not sharing any information about it.
1: I'm surprised that there would be that much overlap in what he'd be doing at Ford and what he'd be doing at Amazon.
0: Well, I think it just tells you everything about where we are in the auto business these days That it is so much a tech business. Corey, what
1: stocks are you drilling down on today? Well, I want to start start with Crit.io. Crit.io. That sounds like an interesting business. What's going on with Crit.io?
0: Yeah, so Crit.io. It was funny. I was having a, a, a meeting with uh, Samantha Fidel, our ad sales director, yesterday, and there was a big Crit.io banner uh, hanging out in a building across the street from us. I thought, God, I haven't looked at that company in a long time. And then today, uh, there was there was news uh, that affected Crit.io. Really, it was Google news more than anything else. Um, but Google uh, made a big announcement that has a tremendous effect on Critio and it had on Critio's stock price. Critio's shares today uh, were up 12%, which is a really sizable move for this company in the ad sales business, um, up 112% for the year. Um, so, what's going on with Critio? Well, Critio um, uh, does a lot of work in advertising and retargeting of advertising, and they depend on cookies the kind of cookies that we, we all use when we use a Chrome browser, like you and I are right now, right? Um, yeah, well, I'm using a Brave browser, but whatever. Um, uh, Google announced earlier that they're going to move away from a certain kind of tracking cookies, these third-party cookies that can follow you across the internet and monitor your uh, what you're doing, your, your behavior and your attributes. They said they were going to get rid of them uh, pretty soon, but they announced today they're going to delay that effort to phase out third-party cookies in the Chrome browser by more than two years, pushing it all the way to mid to late 2023. That gives um, uh, life to the business that is so central to Critio, that business of retargeting uh, uh, ads uh, that that they want to send uh, show their users. So, what exactly is
1: retargeting?
0: So, retargeting is a form of online advertising it uses data to to re-engage leads, if you will. So you log onto a site, you see an ad, you don't click on the ad, but now the advertiser knows it's you. So you go to another site and the same ad pops up and you go to yet another site and that same ad pops up. Well, that's the Criteo, that's a targeting, a retargeting that Criteo uh, can help allow. Now they had a plan to deal with the changes at Chrome if they happened, but I listened to the last conference call and I think you could hear in the voice of Criteo's CEO, uh, Megan Clarkin on their last conference call that they were clearly worried about what was about to happen with Chrome and how they were going to do with it, what it's going to, the effect would be on their business of retargeting.
1: We see the future as being bright for retargeting. Uh, we've put a lot of focus in on the the story that we tell, the caliber of the team that we wrap around it. And the headwind for retargeting is still Chrome, uh, and so we've been very open and transparent around uh, the effects of Chrome, the, the potential effects of Chrome on our retargeting business, um, and that we have some good responses to as well in terms of how we mitigate against what uh, what Google uh, are going to do uh, when they phase out third-party cookies.
0: Well, they're not going to phase them out anytime soon, and that's good news for Critio. and that is why that stock got a, a big bump today, and it's good news for that company's ability to earn over the next three years and transition to some other kind of business. um, They got, they got a a breath of life.
1: Corey, what is your next drill down?
0: How about Rite Aid?
1: Rite Aid. Rite Aid Corporation down big 14.4% today and up 36% for the last year. What's going on with Rite Aid?
0: So you would think, right. So if the market's been up about 40% in the last year, Rite Aid trailing that, you'd think they'd be doing better because of that. One of the places that people have gone uh, in the last year, and really in the last few months, especially, has been a Rite Aid or a Walgreens or you know wherever your healthcare happens to get that vaccine. And we heard earlier from Walgreens that they actually saw a lot of nice sales from people showing up to buy things um, when they were waiting in line for their vaccine. They actually saw an increase in sales, sales because they saw an increase in the number of people in their stores. But um, Ben, have you had a a cough, cold or flu in the last, say, 15 months?
1: No, I'd say I've been remarkably healthy for the last 15 months or so.
0: You are very typical of of people in this country because no one's been around other people and everyone's been wearing a mask and no one's getting the flu and no one's getting a cough and no one's getting a cold. And that has been the state of affairs for Rite Aid. That's not good business for Rite Aid. um, And Rite Aid sort of copped to that when they announced quarterly earnings. Today. Here's CFO Matt Schroeder.
2: Though it's not a huge part of front-end sales, cough, cold, and flu was still down 30 percent, you know, year over year um, for quarter over quarter, and then our acute scripts on a two-year stack basis are still down almost 12 percent. And so, I think what we're seeing is, you know, there's when you peel back, you know, the benefit of the COVID vaccines, and you peel back, um, you know, some of the you know, great signs for kind of recovery. The fact of the matter is, we're still seeing some trends in our business that are what I would call kind of COVID related trends, especially in the, the acute script category. And so I think, you know, we're, um, you know, I, I, there is a time I think when that activity is going to come back, but I can't tell you, we've got clear line of sight in exactly how that's going to be. And I think we're being kind of cautious in how we think about that as we think about the year's guidance.
0: So that was remarkable to me, Ben, that the, the, the slowdown in people getting sick and going to the hospital for other stuff besides COVID has led to a slowdown at Rite Aid. The stock got beat up today for that reason, but it clearly is a headwind for this company, so much so that they're scratching their heads trying to figure out uh, when their good old business is going to be good again.
1: Now, Corey, when they mentioned that cough and cold is down 30% from last year, this quarter, is that June of last year while COVID was still going on? So people are getting cough and cold less?
0: It was the quarter that ended in May. So you figure that that was was May, that was April, that was March. So even last year, it's down from that. Um, I'll tell you, you know, so the last couple of weeks, I've stopped wearing a mask in a lot of situations. And I pretty quickly got a little sniffle and a little bit of a cold. I thought, oh, this thing again. I haven't had this for a long time. So we'll see how long that lasts for for the folks at Rite Aid. But uh, I think it's kind of interesting how we've seen a really a big change in um, uh, what had been their typical business of cold, cough, and flu and how it's hurt their business overall.
1: Well, bad news for Rite Aid, good news for most other people. Yeah. Corey, what is your next drill down?
0: Hey, I want to look at the numbers from KB Home. They reported uh, yesterday, but I think it's still really worth looking at here. Um, The stock uh, at KB Home, well, I think you took a look at it, right? Yeah.
1: KB Home, it's down 7% today, but up 21% for the year. Uh, So what's going on with KB Home?
0: Yeah. So uh, they reported increased revenue, which you might expect, right? Because as we know, people are buying homes like crazy. They're paying up for homes. Uh, The revenue was up 58% year over year to $914 million from the quarter a year ago. Very profitable business. Um, But what was interesting is they didn't take as much price. They didn't raise prices as much as I think some people might have hoped that they would do some owners at least. And it does raise the question overall, how high can housing prices go? We've heard from some of uh, the, the housing uh, um, you know, lobbyists and so on talking about prices going up 20% or more on a year-over-year basis. But what the KB Home CEO Jeffrey Metzgers had to say was that um, uh, really they won't rise too much because when they actually sit down and plan out a community, they really do need to look at what people can afford. That once they've they've broken ground and once they've uh, got a house built, they might raise the price once it's there if they think they can sell it at a higher price. But when they're designing a development, they are looking at how much people earn, how much people can devote to their housing, and they're not going bonkers about it. I thought his uh, his commentary on the conference call was really interesting. Here's Jeffrey Metzger.
2: We're opportunistic once we're open in that submarket. When it comes to the investment in the new community in a submarket, we're very mindful of affordability and household incomes and needs to be attainable. And we can move around with uh, lot size or the size of the homes that we offer in a model park to get close to that median income. And then if you open up and demand is stronger, you take advantage of the opportunity. So it's a it, it, it's per community, and, and it's pricing to market, not to not necessarily to cost. Well, so if we can be opportunistic, we'll take it.
0: So I thought that was just kind of interesting in how they're um, mediating the amount of that they will raise the price of housing. Um, they'll take it when they can get it, but they're not going to plan on having it when they start a new development.
1: It certainly does seem to make sense that even though the cost of living and cost of homes have gone up, Uh, people's income generally has not gone up over the last year. So that makes a lot of sense.
0: Yeah. All right. Well, coming up next, we're going to talk to the chief operating officer of FireEye. Remember, FireEye announced this really big deal where they're splitting their company into two parts, Mandiant and FireEye. John Waters joins us to uh, tell us exactly how this breakup is going to work and why he thinks they're going to see better growth going forward.
1: The Drilldown is brought to you by Era. Aira. Era's event access and monitoring intelligence platform improves earnings season and the investor events in between through comprehensive calendar tracking, one-click event access, dynamic monitors, multicasting, and more. Powered by an advanced language processing engine, which consumes some 40,000 investor events annually across 10,000 global equities, learn more at era A-I-E-R-A dot com. And remember to join the Drilldown on Twitter and Instagram at DrilldownPod, Link up with the Business Podcast Network on LinkedIn and check out our website bizpod.net. Let us know what stocks
0: you think we should be drilling down on. Welcome back to the Drill, Down. We're joined right now by Fire Eyes Chief Operating Officer John Waters. Where is it, Mandy? What what is it now, John? Where do you where do you sit now that you've your company's announced you're going to split the two businesses uh, in two?
2: Yeah, we are we are FireEye for the meantime uh, when the transaction to sell off the products business and the and the brand FireEye uh closes in Q4 we will be rebranded as Mandiant.
0: And the FireEye business goes to the private equity uh group that's that's uh, taking that out, yeah.
2: That's correct, yeah.
0: So ex- explain to me. I listened to conference call. I've read as I've had to say, but explain to our listeners why you've decided to take this business that You know, there was a time when the two businesses together had to be defended for a long time. Why would you want this sort of software business of FireEye and the services business of Mandiant? I'm oversimplifying, but why would you want them together? Now, let me ask you, why would you want them apart?
2: Well, I mean, the industry increasingly needs an independent security firm to be their partner and wake up in their shoes, irrespective of what security controls they use. And over the years— Customers have gone from having like a primary security vendor that they bought all their technologies from, where you could marry all of our capability of intelligence and expertise and software to that security control family and cover a pretty good water- piece of the waterfront. But today, people have technologies from all different kind of vendors, and if you can only support one vendor's products and help customers manage risk associated with their business, uh, you're limited in how you can really support the customer. Even one of our offerings, for example, is security validation. So we would literally be going out with customers and saying, we're validating the effectiveness of all your security controls, including ours. It's like auditing your own work. It just doesn't hold up in terms of the, uh, the, the test of, of, of truth. Even though we were treating our controls just like anybody else's, there's always going to be an implied bias there.
0: Uh, someone once said to me that, that the way to understand the cybersecurity companies are so many listed companies that all claim to be going after the same sort of giant total addressable market, but that maybe really the best way to look at them is what solutions are they providing for? And that are, that most companies are going to have sometimes dozens of different cybersecurity providers to solve dozens of different uh, problems or perceived problems.
2: Yeah, very true. I mean, I I, I lump the security industry into Two big buckets. I mean, one bucket is all of the security products that people invest in to try to detect and defeat threats in line at machine speed. Um, they generate alerts, so that's that's step one, and that's telemetry everywhere. As your attack surface grows to operating technology and and you know IoT and and all the devices at your home and all the work from home devices. There's all these monitoring capabilities. They generate all these alerts. The second part of the business is what do you do with the alerts? How do you find signals in the noise? How do you find the real threats that matter and how do you action those threats in a way to minimize the risk to your business. We're in the second FireEye was in the first. Well,
0: that's um, we interesting. Tried to,
2: so that's just a way to simplify the, the business we're in.
0: So that's an interesting way to divide up the world. And it makes a whole lot of sense. Was there a time when when uh, the combined company could walk into a customer and saying we've got everything you need, but then you found that they were actually finding other solutions elsewhere that were that Mandiant would have to um, evaluate and FireEye was just part of their solution.
2: Well, yeah, I mean a lot of our business uh, started off by you know our new customers came through the incident response business that Mandiant is well known for globally, and we would be responding to a customer breach. We would deploy the FireEye tech stack. And use that in resolving the breach and eradicating the, the adversary from their environment. And they say, hey, we like that tech, leave it behind. You know. So we ended up leaving behind and pulling through the product sale, which was a very good uh, pull through motion for the products business. They enjoyed good growth from that. And a lot of new logos came from us. And, and then they asked us, well, you just keep managing it for us. So we would run it as a service. So we were running an as-a-service capability providing, you know, um, a, a deep inspection on top of the FireEye product portfolio only. We weren't allowed to deal with third-party tech, and we were just married to the, the the telemetry that came from the FireEye products. Over time, customers began to involve which technologies they used, and they say, now you're only covering half of what we use because we got FireEye, but we also have these other technologies that we don't support. So the the market was increasingly pulling us towards wanting us to support all of their various technology platforms uh, and standing in their shoes as their independent security partner. So it became clear to us that we we would better serve our customers as an independent security firm, taking in alerts from whatever security product they used and helping them resolve and manage the risk associated with finding and eradicating the threats.
0: It seems to me that we are in a different place with cybersecurity than we were even six months ago, and, I, and I'm, I'm thinking specifically of the Colonial Pipeline hack uh, that you know crippled the nation's, at least the East Coast gasoline uh, supply for a while and really kind of hit home for people. And I, I wonder if that is a, a, a real uh, seminal moment, do you think, in the business and what you're hearing from your customers?
2: No doubt. I mean, but we've had so many seminal moments. Every year you can think of another event that the, the consequences have gone up and up every year. I can't think of a period of time in the last decade where we had a pause for a year or two, and it was like smooth sailing, and then it kind of came back. So we just we get used to. We're more we're tolerant for higher and higher levels of pain, and the 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 ransomware industry has just gone nuts in terms of the cyber crimes effectiveness of delivering real damage to customers. And what they're they're tripping into is as they're getting inside customers' information technology worlds. And they actually run operation technology, you know, like oil and gas systems and SCADA systems. Right. They don't know that they haven't infiltrated those systems as well. So they have to just, you know, take it offline and shut down their business until they figure out where their infections are. Uh, so they don't want to put risk, physical risk to their downstream customers. So they, they've just, the, the, the adversaries injected so much doubt into, into the integrity of security defenses that nobody knows what to trust anymore. You know they don't know if their stuff works or not, um, and that's really uh, the focus of our business is helping deliver confidence and security and validating all of their security controls against the actual threat adversaries and saying, hey, if they ran this against you, your your capabilities will detect and defeat them, or they won't. And here are the two areas they fail that you need to fix.
0: How much of that is a is a body business? How much of that is you having the right kind of analysts? And people who can just kind of march into a customer and and go through their systems with them, and how much of that is automated?
2: A great question. I mean, so much of the perception that's of the my business, job. That's my job. <laughs> so much the perception of the business is we're just a services business. But what we take is that intelligence and expertise that's core to our fabric, and we deliver it through software. So what I just described is complete software. It's security validation. We take our intelligence knowledge, we codify it in software and build a a software version of an attacker so we can run it at line speed in their environment. And then we go run that attack inside a customer's environment and using the exact tools and technology that a adversary uses to see where their security controls break down. That's all through software and they can do it 24/7, 365 and continuously update that validation capability as the adversary changes their tools and techniques.
0: So what does that mean for your margins going forward uh, now that, you know, again, my perception that FireEye has more um, software than, 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 you know, human capital. What does it mean for your gross margins over the long haul?
2: Uh, we'll approach SaaS gross margins in the next three or four years. I mean, really? they re- ended towards 70. I mean, right now that's 61, which is a blend between 50% services and roughly 50% SaaS. But the SaaS business is growing quickly. And additional investment is made to expand the functionality and the modules and capability on that SaaS platform. So, as that mix shifts towards SaaS, it'll pull up our overall margins
0: that's that's really interesting. That'll be an amazing thing to see. Um, has the, you, you talk about the the enemy you talk about the, the hackers are I don't know if this is a silly question, but are there a lot more hackers than there used to be? because i'm I'm no rookie when it comes to covering technology and understanding technology and understanding hacking. And, and, I, and, I, and I, th- I like to think I know a lot about it, but it really does seem that the number of attacks are greater, even as, as you mentioned, the surface area. Yes, in some way, regards, the surface area has gotten bigger. In other regards, companies have gotten a lot more savvy about this stuff that, you know, I would expect the low-hanging fruit of old industrial companies like a Colonial Pipeline to get picked off, but to, the, the level of activity that we've seen at the NSA, at the, the, well, we don't really know what, what three-letter agencies suffered from solar winds, for example. But it really does seem like there's a lot more activity.
2: Definitely a lot more activity. Uh, not necessarily a lot more attackers. What they've done is become more more organized and more automated in the way they attack. You know, a set of targets. So they can actually build and craft an attack methodology that is a bespoke capability for each individual victim. So they're using technology to deliver. You know, an attack against what might be ten thousand customers but the final mile is enabled through reconnaissance work. So they can actually make each tack somewhat customized for each of the targets. And, you know, if they shoot it at 10,000 and they get in at, you know, a hundred of them, um, and they can get, you know, they ransom each one of them for a million bucks. That's a pretty good business.
0: That's, that's a good return. And uh, it's a uh, better than email marketing. I have no, no doubt is, about it.
2: I guess it is email marketing. Some level. That's exactly what it is. That's what um, phishing is. Right. <laughs> right
0: well, indeed. Uh, how? What percentage of this is nation state? Um, is is plainly nation state? And I, and because it seems that there's a a shadow nation state, right? Which is where you've got um, places that hackers are allowed to operate, and then when it, when a, a hostile government wants to deploy them, that'll say, okay, guys, we're all working together right now. Let's shut down this country, where this part of this country, uh, Crimea, was an example where that happened. Right where you had hackers. Um, Hack some of the vital systems in that country happened years ago, even in other parts of the former Soviet Union. Um, but specific nat- nation-state activities like those that uh, China has been accused of, North North Korea, and Russia.
2: Uh, this, the specific nation-state is 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 still very active. I mean, we got all the media and press around all the intellectual property theft that took place. Right. I mean, just probably the biggest wealth transfer in the history of the world from from modernized technology-led countries to emerging countries that could take that technology, reskin it on a cheaper labor force, and go to market more effectively than the places they stole it from. So so China was a national culprit on that, that scene. has been called out accordingly. Uh, but what you see now um, is this nation-enabled threat that has taken the shape of ransomware to where it's good for their national interest to enable these criminals to operate there and they just get a piece of the VIG, you know? So, I mean, I look at Russia as one of the largest hedge funds in the world. I mean, they just get a piece of everything that their criminal enterprises build and they require them to reinvest it back into their, their economy. So it's the, it's the Robin hood of the world in terms of stealing from the rich countries and delivering it back into the emerging there. And it's, uh, um, it's, it's run rampant.
0: And uh, do you think that that's going to be a lasting, issue of importance to the, the White House. The White House has is, uh, is, is currently been talking about it, but do you think it's going to be something they're really going to stick with for a while?
2: Yes. I don't think they have a choice. I mean, the consequences are too high. I mean, if you look at it just as a global tax, you know, the cyber, cyber crime and, and cyber spend on our economy globally. Um, so I look at total cybersecurity spend, add to that the total losses due to cyber crime in a year, so 2013, we spent about $65 billion and lost about $300 it's about half a percent of global GDP. Wow. And you roll it forward to last year, we spent $130 billion and lost $945 billion. That was about 1.3% of global GDP. If you trend those out to the end of the decade in 2030, it's $4.3 trillion and 3.5% of global GDP. I mean, the estimated impact from COVID global GDP hit was about 4%. Think of that every year. It's just untenable. So we're going to have to change the game and how we're, we're allowing these these adversaries to pull this off and the nations that harbor them to get away with it without any consequences. We we just don't have a choice.
0: Yeah, you must have been heartened to see the recent pronouncements coming out of the White House and comments by uh, Anthony Blinken, the Secretary of State recently, about sort of saying, not sort of saying, specifically saying that it was a private industry um, focus that the White House has because they recognize that's where most the surface area uh, of attacks is.
2: Yeah, I mean, our, our one of our greatest assets as a country and economy is that 90% of our critical infrastructure is in commercial hands. Um, you know, the town side of that is 90% of our critical infrastructure is in commercial hands <laughs> that, that that don't have the ability to fight back. You know, it's like fighting in a boxing match with your hands tied behind your back. All you're trying to do is avoid punches. So you have to have somebody else that's there that, that is nationally aligned with you to protect your interests, um, which the capabilities reside in the government, the authorities reside in the government. Uh, and they're, they're just going to have to step up and, uh, you know, apply their, their, their full set of deterrents to uh, adversaries that are, that are causing harm to the country.
0: Is ransomware far and above the most uh, uh, prevalent of these kinds of attacks?
2: Yes, yeah, and it's it's uh I think there's been almost a direct correlation with the rise of the cyber insurance industry and the rise in size of ransomware attacks and associated requests i mean if if you're if you're an attacker, the first thing you want to do is is go into one of these cyber insurance companies, get a list of all of their policyholders and how much they just insured themselves against. And if you know somebody's got cyber insurance for three million bucks, why would you ask for ten grand? Yeah. <laughs> you, know, you know exactly what they're capable of paying. They can write a check, and there's no consequence. So you're going to get easy money uh, from those type of targets. So you've seen a, an explosion in cybersecurity insurance, and I, I just can't help but that's not somehow connected to the amount of ransom that's being paid today. Um, is is you know, people just pay because there's no consequence to them? Might, might as well.
0: Wasn't it John Dillinger? Why does he rob banks? Because that's where the money is.
2: Hundred percent, hundred percent.
0: John Waters, uh, we really appreciate your time. John Waters is the chief operating officer of FireEye, which we'll soon call Mandiant. That's Fascinating it. Fascinating company, right in the in the heart of things. We want to get to that drill down, bite that one number that tells us a whole lot. We were just talking about the uh, giant rising costs of ransomware. Uh, there's a group called a uh, group IB which did an examination, a study of ransomware. We're going to tell you the average cost of a ransomware attack in 2020. It's not as big as you think, but it might suggest why there's so much of this going on. We'll have that when the drill down continues. The drill down is brought to you
1: by Era, a one stop equity platform where you can seamlessly connect to any earnings call and surface actionable insights automatically. Era's AI powered tools will allow you to work faster and smarter. That's Era, A I E R A dot com.
0: And let me ask you a favor. Yeah, you, please. Tell a friend about The Drill Down. Tell someone you care about why you listen to this show and what you like about it. And why don't you tell the rest of the world by leaving a review? You can go to your favorite podcast platform and leave a review of the show. It really helps us out and helps spread the word of what we're doing here on The Drill Down. And let us know what companies you think we
1: should be drilling down on. Talk to us on Twitter and Instagram by following at Drill Down Pod and connect with us directly at our website, bizpod.net.
0: All right, we're back with a drill down, bite that one number that tells us a whole lot. Well, we are talking about these giant, giant, multi-million dollar payouts for ransomware. But according to Group IB, here's your drill down, bite that one number that means a whole lot. That number is $170,000. That's right, the average size of a ransomware demand last year in 2020 was $170,000, but that was twice the size of ransomware uh, um, uh, demands from the previous year. Well, you've been listening to The Drill down. I'm Corey Johnson. Isaac Webster is our executive producer. The Drill Down is a production of the Business Podcast Network.
2: This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.